You're listening to a Southside Baptist Church podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Barker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Amen. Well, amen. Thank you so much. And boy, always, I'm like Doug said this morning, he said, man, I'm ready to let loose and worship a little bit. I've, uh, and I want to make sure we're being, uh, we're being recorded. Are we being, okay, great. Thank you, Eric. Eric's up there stepping in. Uh, he and Sarah for even uh, John and Emily are out today. I've, I've titled this message because we're looking at a series on, on the subject of hell. And I, I've titled this message, Is Hell Giving God a Public Image Problem? Now let me repeat that again. Is hell giving God a public image problem? And I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, over in the New Testament, chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 42 through 48. And to me, it's a frightening passage of Scripture. In fact, I tell you what, let's, let's just stand. Uh, this is such a, a strong passage coming out of the mouth of Christ that I think it might be good for us to stand. Jesus said, And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Now everybody look this way. I don't know about you, but what Jesus is saying, if you and I cause anyone to stumble or they're offended and they trip in this journey of faith, if we call someone to uh, turn away from the gospel because of our own testimony and the life that we live, then Jesus said we need to be very concerned about that. And I want you to think for a moment. I don't know about, I nearly drowned it when I was in the second grade. It is a horrible experience. And, and 53 years later, I can still remember the moment and the feeling, and I can see me drowning. The thought of somebody tying a stone around my ankle, tossing me in the middle of the reservoir, and me sinking to the bottom with no hope of being recovered is a frightening thing. So what Jesus is saying is, He's saying you and I need to be very careful here. In verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Now listen to his description. Where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you. We love you. Lord, this is a difficult passage, a difficult subject, and give us wisdom. Give me wisdom. And may we be attentive, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. When I was in high school, I, I took my senior year course called Business Law. And I really thought, Molly, to be honest with you, that I was going to be a, uh, a lawyer. 
Because what God needs, He needs some godly lawyers. So uh, I was really excited about going in that direction. And uh, we had a, had a little social for Andy, our drummer, yesterday at Jeffrey's home, a tool party. And uh, the guys were all in there just pounding away questions at poor old Molly, who is in law school, asking all these different scenarios. But it's a fascinating study, this thing of law. Well, in this class, business law, um, we had an opportunity to visit Parchman Prison. Now, it is probably the largest prison... I guess in our penal system here in, in the state of Mississippi, it's, uh, it was unbelievable. I've never forgotten it. I can see a picture of me, a high school senior, being given a tour of Parchment Prison. Here we were, we were class, business law class. We were just going up and through the corridors. And back in those days, maybe safety was not quite as big a thing. So we had the opportunity to interact with inmates. And I can remember some of the conversations. I can still see looking through those bars and speaking to some of the inmates and some of them coming up and saying to us high school kids, you never want to end up here. Let me tell you, I came close a few times. But I haven't yet. I was pulled over one time years ago. Tim Chenault, our youth guy, was, was following me because one of the, my taillights were out. My dog had chewed the wiring up under the bed of the truck. And so I was on my way getting ready to exit off there in Brandon. And before long, cop pulled me over. Police officer pulled me over there the exit and had me get out of the car. And I was back there at the back of the car. I just left Sunday night service. And Tim pulled up behind me and the cop let him know real quick, you can't stay there, sir. You get on, you move on. So he pulled on down to a gas station there at the exit. Before long, there was a second police officer there and, and they were really giving it to me. Here I am, the preacher of Southside. I'm back there against the truck, I mean, of my, of my truck, on the bed, back bed of my truck. And he said, he said uh, do you realize that your license is expired? I said, no, I did not. He said, do you realize that your uh, inspection sticker is out? I said, no, I did not. He said, did you realize your taillights are out? I said, yes, sir, I did know that. And he said, do you understand, sir, that I'm supposed to take you and put you in jail? And it's one time I will never forget this, and I know I blew his mind. I looked at him and I said, please do, because I said, I am tired and I need the rest. And he looked at me kind of startled, and the other officer pulled up, and he couldn't figure it out, and finally I just said, you know, I said, I'm just so tired right now, it would probably do me some good. But that trip to the prison, I never forgot let me ask you something this, this morning. Could the theological, the doctrinal understanding of hell be God's way of reminding us of how we do not want to live and where we do not want to go? In other words, is hell like God? Is it God? Does hell serve that purpose? Now, I wrote down here in doctrinal sermons, or any time as a pastor you attempt to address a portion of our system of theology, you get very, very fearful because people today are very lazy listeners a lot of times. Sometimes if it gets a little deep, people just turn off. Secondly, people don't have long, extens uh, long attention spans. You know, you can't 
keep people's attention for very long. And that's why we throw in illustrations and stories and try to bring you back and keep you, keep you involved. And because this message sounds like more that of a seminary class, it would be easy for you to kind of doze off, but I pray you won't. Because I believe that in our modern day, the lack of preaching on hell and the lack of teaching on hell is part of the problem as to the moral slide in our country today. The doctrine of hell serves a purpose. And perhaps much like my visit to the prison, which came at a critical moment in my life, we need to reevaluate our understanding as a church as to this idea of hell. I wrote down Exodus 34, 6 and 7, because a lot of times when you're looking at this subject, people have a lot of questions. As we've already seen, people are already asking me questions. And one question is this, is there an element of God's character that requires hell? Is there an element of God's character that requires hell? And I thought of Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where the writer said here, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he said, and God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, twice, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. A man asked me this past week, he said, does God just annihilate evil? Now look again at Mark chapter 9 verse 48. Because in Mark chapter 9 verse 48, he says where, he's talking of hell here, he says where the worm does not what? The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, there's a theological position that says this, there'll come a point after the judgment that God will just take all the evil of the world and He'll just annihilate it. He'll get rid of it. It will cease to exist. In other words, a man or a woman who is evil, who has rejected Christ and has now been judged, will be annihilated. They'll cease to exist any longer and there is not an eternal hell. This has gained popularity since the 1960s. It's interesting that this theological understanding of hell has come along during the sexual revolution and during the time of the rebellion against authority. Maybe what is happening here, this theological position, has re caused us to reevaluate and see God is just basically this individual that will remove us and we'll live as be as if we hadn't ever lived. I wrote this down, if the fires of hell, which are described by Jesus as being unquenchable. Let me explain that term there. The idea being that they are not quenched, they are not satisfied. Listen to this, this is the Greek. They are not put out, they are not extinguished, they never go out. I don't think how much clearer it could be. And yet, the sobering reality here is they can't kill a worm. The most vulnerable and helpless creature to fire, Jesus says the worm will not even be able to die. Then I would say that annihilation is probably not something that you and I should bank on. Listen to this quote, people who hold to such views may have personal reasons for doing so. To some, that would be the answer 
to their prayer, cremation of the body. You ever notice how many people are being cremated today? I had a friend of mine that called recently and told me that he was going to be cremated. I think because he's asked me to do his funeral, would I have a problem with it? And I, I really don't. David is dust. You know, some of the great men and women of Scripture who have they've returned to the dust, I have no problem with that. If you want to speed up the process, go right ahead. But if you're trying to escape God in judgment, be rest assured the one that raised Adam and Eve out of the dust is perfectly able to call your DNA out of the dirt. But some people who hold to such views may have a personal reason for doing so. To some, that would be the answer to their prayer. Not only cremation, cremation of the body, why not the soul? The writer continues, every enemy of God is banking on this doctrine of God just simply annihilating the annihilation of Hitler's depraved soul or those who orchestrate mass killings, blow up buildings, blow up planes, send men and women and children to their death. They would be happy with this belief to the multitudes who have led billions in false religion and thereby sentenced many of them to an eternity without God would be happy with being annihilated. If you had a death sentence right now, there's one thing that you would make clear. I wanted, we were talking about this yesterday. We even got Molly in on that conversation. On death sentences. And we began to talk about how you'd want to be put to death. Well, let me tell you two things you would want. You would want it to be quick and painless. Right? And some people are developing a concept, a theology of hell, in which hell is a place where God does it quickly and it's painless and it's over. I wrote this down, there's a deeper question, but is annihilation an act of justice? Is the annihilation, in other words, those who hold the opinion that Hitler had a, had a limited or a conditional immortality? In other words, though he was immortal, after he is judged, he's now mortal, it's conditional, and he'll be annihilated and he will cease to exist. After reading uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, uh, biography by Alexis to, um, Eric Metaxas, uh, and seeing his description of the Holocaust, my thought was annihilation would be too quick and too easy for Hitler. Is annihilation indicative of God's justice and His character? And even deeper, one may ask, now listen to this because this is something that you ask and this is something most people ask. One may ask, how can a loving God, a God of love and justice, you remember Martin, uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. who said that the other side to the coin of, of love is the justice of God. One may ask, how can a loving God, a God of love and justice, justify the severity, the measure of an eternal punishment in hell in relation to the crime of a finite fallen creature? Does God seem fair to take a finite fallen creature and sentence him to an eternity separated from him where he'll live for eternity just as we would in heaven? Now, I need you to put your thinking caps on. I would say in Zimbabwe, and I need to start getting ready, tedidai. Tedidai means listen closely. Number one, 
Now let me go back to the question because some people ask you and you even think maybe in your own deep in the depth recesses of your heart, how can a loving God, a God of love, justify the severity of an eternal, eternal punishment in hell? Number one, we don't understand on this side of eternity the severity of the crime. We are judging the eternal by our temporal finite minds. We get on the other side of death. We step into God's kingdom and immediately hell will make as much sense as heaven. Number two, people who hold to this position state that the moral argument as to the character of God is being damaged by a fiery eternal hell. In other words, people say, that I'm not comfortable with that characteristic or that portrayal of God. I don't, my God is not, you ever hear people say that? My God is not like that. My friend, we don't care what your God looks like. We only care what this, what this book here says God looks like. But people will say, well, you know, my God doesn't look like that. Well, let me give you an example. Again, let me read number two. People who hold to this position state the moral argument as to the character of God being damaged by a fiery eternal hell. That doesn't sound like a God of grace, mercy, and goodness. Something is wrong. You people have got your theology wrong. No, we haven't. Let me give you an example. Every one of us have watched this... Muslim extremists who went into this gay bar nightclub down in Orlando and shot 49 people, killed them to their death. We've seen videos of people that are hunkered down literally in bathroom stalls trying to save their lives. We've heard, we've heard 911 calls. We, we've seen the trauma and the tragedy of it. And you and I need to pray for these families that have been affected. But imagine had this man who committed this crime, he was the 50th death. Imagine had he not committed suicide and he had brought, been brought to our court system to be tried. The next thing you know, they've, they've given him a lawyer. You've got all these families that have been affected by this man's brutal massacre of, of 49 people. And, and here this man's in a court of law. They show video, 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 video after video. They have witness after witness. They go in, listen, they prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man is guilty of this crime. So finally when it's all done and they've all given their final arguments, the judge has this Islamic extremist stand in front of him and he looks at him and he says, do you have anything you want to say? And the man doesn't say anything. And he says, sir, in light of all the evidence that's been given, I sentence you to 30 days of community service. What would you think? Who would you have a bad opinion of? judge the reason being and I wrote this down is he a good judge and the answer to that is no no you would say no he's a poor judge he's an unfair judge he is guilty of a great moral crime he is a judge that has that uh, a judge is perceived you would say a judge is perceived 
as worthy of respect by how well he handles his courtroom. In other words, is this court of law been fair and impartial and you would judge him secondly by the sentence that he's meted out. And you would, act, you would scream 30 days of community service. No! His sentence does not equal the crime. My friend, before you discount the theological understanding, the biblical understanding of hell, you and I need to be careful that we've not took time to remember that we don't fully understand not only the severity of the crime, but we don't understand our judge. When we have rejected, when we have rejected his son, Number three, those who hold to a God who annihilates evil. Who just simply says, well, after the, after the judgment, God just completely just removes us as if we never existed. Those who hold to a God who annihilates evil or those who question the character of God based on this mode of punishment, hell, eternal suffering, have no idea as to the severity of the crime of rejecting Christ and trampling His blood. Number four, listen to this. Some people would say, well, you know, those are all symbols. Those are parables. Listen to this. Theologically, this is correct. Symbols are not fictitious representations of untruths, void of any real weight or meaning, but rather are feeble attempts in the Bible to describe a spiritual world in a fallen, frail language. If Jesus states in Luke 16 or Mark 9 the severity of hell as unquenchable, as a place of suffering, as a place where a worm doesn't die, he is telling us in, even if you were to say this as symbolic, figurative, you, it would have to be concluded that Jesus was warning us that hell is worse than you and I could ever visualize. Number five, to believe that God annihilates evil men and women who we, the idea here again is conditional mortality and that we become, we are immortal, but we can become mortal and God just removes us. We cease to exist is to cause us to stand in the company of Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witness. And somebody might say, well, John Stott was a, yes, he was an Anglican. It has, this view has gained ground since the 1960s, again, along with a sexual revolution and a rebellion against authority. Number six, the severity of hell demonstrates, listen, the love of God and what He is willing to do to save you and I. Let me repeat that. The severity of hell demonstrates the love of God and what He's willing to do to save you and I to attack the severity of hell, to tone, to tone down hell, and the biblical understanding of hell is to attack Christ. You may say, well, that's strange. Well, let me give you an example. Suppose you come to us and you say, Brother Jeff, I'd like to share a testimony. And you say, you know, um, you stand up here and you say, this past week I was in a major city. Um, and a fireman saved me. A fireman saved me from a burning building. Man, all of a sudden we're sitting on edge. And here you are, you say, yeah, I was up there in a major city, 
and, and the building caught fire and, and, and I was on the 50th floor of this building and it was just beginning to be engulfed in flames. I was screaming and hollering, hollering out the window, wanting somebody to help me when all of a sudden a fireman came and, and the fireman literally could not get the ladder quite there. He jumped, grabbing hold of the ledge. He was able to pull himself into the window and thereby he was able, as they began to get a lo- longer ladder, he was able to save my life. And we go, wow. And then all of a sudden somebody else goes, what? I was with him on that, on, I was with her on that trip. We were together. And the building was only two stories. And there was a microwave that caught fire in the kitchen area of the office. And yeah, the firemen were called, but... I don't know all this about jumping out. You see, that person now is affecting your understanding, not only of the person who's telling the story, but your understanding as to the glamour that you would give to the fireman. Now, all of a sudden, a fireman who goes and walks in there and takes something off the wall and sprays this little microwave that's on fire and, and escorts this person out so they don't get smoke inhalation, now, all of a sudden, a fireman's not as big and bad as you thought he was, is he? Does that make sense? Now let me read it again. The severity of hell demonstrates the love of God and what God is willing to do to save you and I. If we play down hell, if we attack the severity of hell, if we tone it down thinking we are protecting God's character, in essence we are attacking the character of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's critical. may take your thinking caps to figure it out. When American troops were marching to Hitler's doorstep, do you know what Hitler did? Anybody know what he did? (laughs) They were moments away from capturing Hitler. They killed Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know what Hitler did? When the Germans were uh, beginning to pull away, when they were being defeated, when our troops were getting ready, when our troops were marching into Germany, he, he gave the order to execute ministers, godly men and women by the thousands. And one of them was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was less than a week from being released, this great theologian and preacher. Right before they were to capture Adolf Hitler, he took his life. Thereby he avoided the judicial system of his day and more so the punishment that would have been dealt to him. Man cannot commit suicide of the soul. Jesus said, don't fear the one that can kill the body. He said, fear the one that can kill the soul. And you say, well, wait a minute now, you know. Can that be done very quickly? I doubt it. I wrote this down, if God's justice and more so His anger or wrath are not expressed within this life, then when is it expressed? When does it occur? Where does it occur? How long does it occur? And who carries it out? And again, for how long? Some might say, you might say in this room, you might say, well, you know, Calvary was the full expression of God's anger, God's judgment on sin, and thereby ultimately exonerates man from his crime. 
But what if the provisions of Calvary are rejected? The blood of Jesus Christ trampled, treated as an unholy thing. Then again, what remains for that individual who has rejected Christ? Where does he go and for how long and by whom? Does that make sense? President Obama is getting ready to do something. He's getting ready to pardon people. Now let me tell you what's happening right now, right now. The president is getting an avalanche of letters by family and friends on behalf of prisoners, people that are in our prison system. And they are asking the president to pardon them. There are three possibilities. Number one, a person could refuse a pardon based on just pride. I don't need the president. You know, he might... Uh, he might pardon somebody and say, I don't want it. I'm a proud man. I'll serve my time. Number two, they may refuse a pardon because to, re to accept the pardon is to admit guilt. And they may say to the president, I will not be pardoned for a crime I did not commit. But they're still guilty. Number three, their refusal to accept the pardon of the president could be because they don't feel worthy I feel like I need to, to pay for my crime. And so they refuse the forgiveness that the president is offering. And that also is a form of pride. Now let me give you two quick points about hell. Number one, hell's a real place. Hell's a real place. You know, I love funerals. John 14, if it's a Christian, where you, you know, Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. I love those, I love those words. I love telling people that. Billy Graham said that heaven is a busy place. I love to hear Billy Graham talk about heaven. He would go on to describe it as a place of excitement. Busily, they're working and getting everything ready. And I, I wrote down here, as I, as I thought about that, all of us have no difficulty believing there is a heaven, a place being prepared for the saints. But is there a place being prepared for the unrepentant sinner? Hell is a literal place. Last week we saw it in Luke chapter 16. It said a certain Jesus told the story of a certain rich man in a certain place. I wrote this quote down. The rich man had no, had no name, yet he was a certain rich man. His existence, the record of his life, his citizenship had been erased from the records of heaven, but he was on the roll of hell. You remember Jimmy Stewart, and it's a wonderful life. When Clarence the angel looks at Jimmy Stewart and he says, Listen, I'll let you see your life. I'll let you see this world as if your life never existed. And out of the thread, Jimmy Stewart's life, and it's a wonderful life, that Christmas special was pulled, and eventually Jimmy Stewart came to understand that his life had affected the entire world. But the man here in Luke 16 is a man with no name. He's been taken out of the book of law. I mean, he's, he's failed in the book of law. He's failed in the book of works. He's not written in the Lamb's book of life. But he's on the record of hell. Hell's made reservations for him. I, I looked at this. It was a medical uh, journal that wrote about the weight of a soul. And do you know what they said? They said that the weight of a soul is one gram. That at death, every person will lose a gram of weight. And they can't explain it. 
And they finally said it must be the weight of a soul. Every seven years I've been told that our bodies replenish, they remake themselves, and yet there's something that makes us uniquely who we are, our soul. The rich man is aware of Lazarus, but Lazarus is not aware of him. Both are in a place that has been prepared. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said this. He said, don't fear the one who can kill your body, but rather fear the one who can kill both body and soul. Now listen to this. In hell, a specific location. Listen to what one writer said. We know the illustration of Lazarus bears evidence that the task of the destruction of his body and his soul seems to take time because we see an expanse of time even in the length of the conversation that he's having. Jesus makes two points about hell in Matthew 10, 28. He says the killing of the soul we should fear. And secondly, more so, the one who kills the soul we should fear. And beyond that, again, how long does it take to kill a soul which seems to be an eternal element, a man unlike his flesh? And where is the place it takes eternity? The Jew had an idea of this. They called it Gehenna. It's a place where the evil kings such as Ahaz had sacrificed their children. It was a place of wickedness, sin, rebellion, and great acts. Isaiah 66 talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it. Mark quotes Jeremiah. Jesus uses the word hell 11 times. What is important is this, and I'm trying to move quickly. Jesus seems to identify a particular location, a particular location for the express purpose of judgment and the execution of a sentence. And you don't want to go there. It's a real place. Secondly, it has a real purpose. You remember when God said these words. You know, we throw this around all the time. You ever hear people say this? Well, you know, the Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. We always think that has to do with us. God, you're going to get them, you're going to zap them. They don't make me mad. They don't mess with your property, God. You go after them. I pray, man, I mean, a lightning bolt's going to pop them going to the car. The problem is with that is we fail to understand that when he's talking there about vengeance, he's also talking about hell. You see, again, where the punishment is meted out and for how long? If you look, and man, I, I, I guess I got to stop. No, I'm going to do it. Uh, Romans 12. Just look at Romans 12. Quick, quick, as long as I hurry, I want you to see this, and we'll close in a moment. Romans 12, 26 through 31. Romans chapter 12. No, that's not it. So maybe that's it. Maybe I just need to close in because I'm in the wrong passage. Let me just stop here. It's 60 years old and doing this for about 40 years. I know my enemy. And the last thing he wants you to ever think about is judgment, punishment, and hell. So I know right now I'm bad. And that's all right. And we'll close here. But I want you to listen very closely. When I, was, when I was a young man, my call to the ministry came this way. 
My dad's youngest brother, 38 years old, had viral pneumonia and he was dying. Nobody admitted it, nobody knew it, but I knew it. Because when I went in there, a 16-year-old high school kid, and picked up his hand, his hands, his fingers were turning blue. I loved him. He was my favorite. He and I were so close. But my Uncle Tom was dying. I remember at a certain point, the doctor came in and said, we're going to try to get him to the VA hospital. This was back about 1970, 71. We're going to get him to the VA hospital in Jackson. My grandmother, because he was contagious, I ended up in the hospital with viral pneumonia the next week. Because he was contagious, my grandmother, who was elderly, said that maybe one of us should ride. And so my dad, my dad, who was at work at the time, called me and said, son, would you ride? I said, yes, sir, I will. So I'm riding with my uncle, who's contagious. We're in the back of Strickland King's Hearst on our way to the hospital because I didn't have ambulances in Yazoo City. On our way there, this uncle, 38 years old, about to go into eternity, I'll never forget the way he looked. He looked afraid. In fact, he looked scared. And in that moment, there was the overwhelming presence of Jesus Christ in the back of that hearse, tapping a 15, 16, 17-year-old. I can't even remember exactly. I think I was 15 or 16 tapping this, a teenager on the shoulder and saying, son, I'll never forget it. It is not, I am not willing. I don't want anybody to die this way, son. And God called me to preach. Now I want you to listen. I want senior adults to listen to me. There's something that nobody knows, not even her. I've been the pastor of this church nearly 20 years. I've buried a lot of people in this church. I've seen people who've held positions in this church, people who've been members for years, who have gone out into eternity, and I've had some of them in ICU. I've had some of them in their rooms. I've had some of them at the point of death simply say to me. I've had some of them sit and say to me in those moments, scared to death, frightened, people who held positions of influence in this church, people that if I told you their name right now, break your heart. A senior adult woman who looked at me and literally with tears, she said, help me. Senior adult man who I was standing there and his family didn't even see it and he looked at me and he said, help me, brother Jim. He couldn't even get the words out of his mouth. He was just mouthing it with his lips. Let me tell you something, folks. I'm 60 years old and I've been doing this for about 40 years. I was a paramedic. I drove an ambulance. I've been watching a lot of people die. I've seen people like Karen, our friend down in Natchez, lifting her hands and shouting and heading to heaven. I've seen some people who were crying and looking at me, begging me to help them, and I couldn't. Your name on the church roll, the fact that you've been baptized, anything else doesn't make a dime's worth of difference one breath after you die. A moment after you die, you and I stand before the Lord and what we have done about Christ makes all the difference. You say, well, I, I, listen, I, I was baptized. I've gone down the aisle. I've done that. And it ain't made a dime's worth of difference in your life. You're just cold spiritually. You're just living a life that is absolutely diametrically opposed to the fact that you say Jesus Christ is living in you. You say, well, everybody sins. I sin, and I'm absolutely put in hell when I do. 
It's like the Holy Spirit is just rising up in me saying, you can't live like that. Stop it. But some people can live it as if it's nothing. Why? Because I think in all honesty, they forgot there's an accounting on the other side. And one second after death, it's too late to go back. It's over. Are you ready? Do you know for certain? Let's stand with his bow. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord. Uh, oh, Lord, I, I, I tried to do my best. Preaching on this kind of subject, dear Lord, is unpleasant. People may say to me, I don't, I don't like these kind of sermons. I don't, I don't like these kind of subjects. I don't, I don't like talking about this. Well, I don't either. I'd whole lot rather preach about heaven and talk about salvation and Jesus Christ. And for every man, woman, boy, and girl, in the sound of my voice right now, may they understand that though we may talk about the severity of hell, it is just an indication of how much Jesus Christ loved us and loves us. And God has went to every... He, he's, done, he's taken every possible measure to ensure that every man, woman, boy, and girl doesn't go to hell. He's done everything that He can do. He's given His Son. His Son was beaten and abused. His Son's hair and beard were pulled out of His head and out of His face. He was spit on. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was beaten almost to the point of senselessness by the cat of nine tails, by that Roman lictor who was given that responsibility. He had been up all night. He had been betrayed. He had been sold out by Judas. He had been cursed and, and turned against by Peter. His disciples had run and left him. His mom stood at a distance and watched him beaten and bruised with that crossbeam heading up to Golgotha, heading up to Calvary. And God would say to every man, woman, boy, and girl in the sound of my voice, God would say to them, Why would you reject my son? Because there's no other alternative to the severity of our crime if we reject the grace and the mercy and the love and the goodness of Jesus Christ. There is no plan B. There is no second chance. And there is no annihilation. So we pray, dear Lord, that you right now speak to the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. Adrian Rogers was asked one time about preaching so hard about hell. And they said, I, I feel like you're trying to scare us. He said, I'd rather scare you into heaven than love you into hell. Amen. Well, Lord, there's a lot of truth to that. Some of our family members, some people that we know, We've quit sharing the gospel because we don't believe in hell anymore. May you wake us up, dear Lord, the seriousness of this subject and the desperate hour. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.